Hello and welcome to another episode of the Checked on Charlie's Football Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Eric, and I am joined by my friend and co-host, Theo. What is up, Theo? Nothing much, man. Um, unfortunately, as we were trying to record, my mic wasn't working and I tried to see what was going on. And we found out that it needed a like hard reset. And 45 minutes later, here we are. Here we are. Exactly. You know what? It's not just us who are who are grinding every single day to to bring you guys quality content. It's also our laptops and microphones. So, you know, if you're if you're listening to this right now, your laptop probably needs to be reset. So give it a break and let it do its thing. Word to the wise, just yeah. When you're doing something else, just press the reset button or, or shut it down. Absolutely. Absolutely. On last week's episode, we covered the emergence of Don Shula, the Don, and uh, what kind of a culture change he brought to the Miami Dolphins organization. So we rounded out the 60s. Obviously, we're going into 1970. And in this week's episode, we will be covering 1971. The beginning of the 1971 season would bring a renewed sense of purpose and expectations to the Miami Dolphins. As mentioned earlier, the Dolphins would end up losing their first round pick in the 1971 draft as part of the tampering charges laid on them by the NFL commissioner at the time, Pete Rozelle. The 1971 draft included some future Hall of Famers, including Steelers linebacker Jack Ham, Washington running back John Riggins, St. Louis Cardinals and former CBS commentator Dan Deerdorf, Rams defensive lineman Jack Youngblood, and Eagles wide receiver Harold Carmichael. For their part, the Dolphins would end up using a fourth-round pick on a QB out of Notre Dame University by the name of Joe Thiesman, later changed to Theismann. Despite finishing as the runner-up for the Heisman Trophy, which is the best player in college football, Theismann was deliberating on whether or not to play football or baseball at the time. To underscore the ongoing competition between football leagues at the time, Joe had also been approached by the Toronto Argonauts of the CFL with a lucrative contract offer, which is uh, our hometown team, isn't it, Theo? Technically, the Toronto Argonauts. Technically, it is. Absolutely. In March of 1971, the Dolphins and Theismann had reached a verbal agreement on a contract for the multi-sport star to play in Miami. All that was left to do was for Theismann to sign the contract. However, to their surprise in April, Theismann signed a two-year contract with the Argos. He eventually ended up playing in Washington under equally legendary coach Joe Gibbs. But that's a story for another podcast. Only three out of the 14 players the Dolphins drafted in 1971 ended up making it to the roster. One of them was a ninth rounder by the name of Vern Den Herder. I'd just like to point out, as we had mentioned in the first episode, that basically in present times, the CFL won't touch a college prospect that's potentially going to the NFL just because they can't compare. Whereas like in 1971, I guess the leagues were closer in terms of growth and viewership that the Argonauts could actually compete with the Dolphins. Like, it's out of the realm of possibility in today's game. I think also it's important to keep in mind that Theismann wasn't necessarily a highly 
touted prospect. I mean, obviously he was the runner up for the Heisman trophy, but the way that it works is that college talent or college success doesn't necessarily translate to the pros. So it might've been a case of him while he was being so successful in college, he wasn't necessarily so highly sought after from NFL franchises as he was in the CFL. It also seems like they probably offered him more stability with the lucrative offer, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, eventually it ended up working out for Theismann, I would say, based on we know his career arc. But it's just an interesting aside to to let you know that, you know, the NFL wasn't always the monopoly that we know it to be today. Yeah, because like today, a fourth round pick is for sure going to the NFL. They're not considering going to the Toronto Argonauts, right? I mean, a lot of players will end up going to the CFL if they've had their chance in the NFL. And it's only rare occasions where a CFL player will slip through the cracks and not make it to the NFL or go to the CFL first and then go to the NFL. Is that actually true that he changed his name from Thiesman to Thiesman? I heard that somewhere because he grew up as Thiesman, but then he wanted his name to sound more like Thiesman, like the Heisman? Heisman Trophy. So somebody told him to change his name to, to Thiesman. But listen, I still need to do, <laughs> I still need to corroborate that. So maybe, uh, <laughs> maybe don't call me out on that. Uh, we'll, we'll say I've heard, I've heard whispers of that being the truth, but we will wait till we do more Washington research to let you guys know for sure. So going back to the 1971 Dolphins draft, Verndon Herter was a ninth round selection by the Dolphins and in either the choice of playing defensive end or going back to veterinarian school. During training camp in 1971, the dean of the University of Iowa gave Vern a call. They needed a decision. He decided to take a leap of faith and join the Dolphins for going school to pursue a career in football. A short time later, he would make the roster and become a mainstay for 12 years. Again in 71, the Dolphins would use their steady offense to wear opponents down, primarily with the help of players like Larry Zonka and Jim Kick, who formed a formidable backfield duo. Zonka rushed for his first 1,000-yard season behind the aforementioned Expendables. Bob Greasy would take the next step in the progression of his career as he would be named the NFL's Player of the Year. The Dolphins were able to win their first AFC East Division title in franchise history, going 10-3-1 on the season, and this time finishing ahead of Shula's old squad, the Colts. The Dolphins' conquest of the AFC East led them to a tilt against the Kansas City Chiefs in the 1971 Divisional Playoffs. What was billed as being a young team facing their first real test turned out to be one of the most epic games in NFL history. Quote, That game had everything, said Don Shula. Larry Zonka described the game as a struggle, a back-and-forth affair that had the lead change hands several times. Zonka would say, Quote, we kept trying to cut their head off and we couldn't, and they kept trying to cut our head off and couldn't. Chiefs running back Ed Podolak was unstoppable, racking up 350 total yards in the contest. Just as it had all season, the Dolphins kept their offensive pressure steady, with Sanka kick, toting the rock and Greasy calling the shots. Bob Greasy said, we had several opportunities during the ball game to quit and say, listen, we're young, they're the champions. We've played well to get here, and we can just pack it in and go home. We just didn't do that and kept coming back, and finally, uh, things turned our way. A long kickoff return from Podolak set up the chip shot field goal 
to put the Chiefs ahead in the fourth quarter, but it was missed and the game headed into overtime. By then, both exhausted offenses stalled and the defenses tightened up until a long run from Larry Zonka set up Garo Yepremian's game winner in double overtime. The Dolphins would win 27-24. The playoff game holds the record as the longest game in NFL history with 82 minutes and 40 seconds of actual game time, which is absolutely nuts. If you think about an actual game is 15 minute quarters. So the max that you would get in any NFL game is 60 minutes plus overtime, which is an additional 75. This went into double OT, which is not definitely not something you would see in today's game, right, Theo? Exactly. And this is just game time, like time actually played on the field. So you can imagine it's an over four hour broadcast at this point. Larry Zonka actually says that he lost so much weight from the game that he went down a pant size like on the sidelines. The epic clash deserves its place in NFL history of tough weather games alongside the Ice Bowl, the Epic in Miami and the body bag game in 1990, and the Freezer Bowl in 1982. Don't worry, we will definitely cover those as well. Definitely, especially the Epic Miami in the early 80s, which unfortunately does not go the Dolphins' way. There's a story on Undefeated that says that Don Shula truly believed in the restorative properties of beer, especially when it came to replenishing electrolytes, which he believed helped with muscle fatigue. Whenever he would have his players over at his house, he would grow burgers and leave beers available for everyone. Beer was encouraged on the team playing journey, but not hard liquor. Some may say that it was the beer in their systems that allowed them to make it through such an arduous game. This game put the Dolphins on the map as real contenders and forced to be reckoned with. Sanka said, it was the first time we realized that we could play heads up football with just about anybody, which is sort of interesting because if you look at, especially nowadays, like teams that are on the Ascension, there's always that like defining game that separates them from pretender to contender. And Mm -hmm. Just like offhand, I remember when the Ravens were actually a big deal during Lamar's ascension, and then they go in and they beat the Patriots. He ended up running all over them. That was sort of like his breakout. And much like that, this game against the Chiefs did the same thing for the Dolphins. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, it happens with a lot of franchises, especially ones filled with young and up and coming talent is that they need to be able to prove themselves on a big stage. It's one thing to win in the regular season and go 10-3-1 as they did in 1971. It's a whole nother kettle of fish to go up against the Kansas City Chiefs who were a powerhouse team at the time, you know, former AFL, AFC champions, and then go in and, and beat them in double overtime in an epic game. So yeah, definitely a turning point for the franchise. I'm not so sure about the broadcast at that point in time in the early 70s, but like I can imagine like if something like this were to happen nowadays, let's say it was like a four o'clock slot where, you know, the Dolphins aren't really for real, but the Chiefs are a big team. If it just so happens to go to double overtime, right? All those other broadcasts in the four o'clock window would have ended. You know how they just like move you to the game that's still going on? Mm hmm during that four o'clock window, once your game is, once the local game's already ended. So you just have that many more eyes on the team when it goes to double overtime, right? I mean, back then it was only the local broadcast that would be available, right? So even if there were other games, it would be pretty rare to be able to see them. But 
yeah, I mean, if it happened in, in today's NFL, people would be going nuts, man. It would be a total sensation on social media. And, you know, if you were watching Red Zone, of course, everybody would want them to pan to this double OT crazy playoff game. I mean, Red Zone doesn't happen in the playoffs, but you see what I mean. It was such an epic clash between two very evenly matched teams, you know, so I can see why it was such a big deal. Next up was a date in the AFC Championship with Shula's old team, the Baltimore Colts. The game could not have gone more perfectly for the Dolphins. The result was a 21 to nothing victory against their nemesis. Paul Warfield and Bob Greasy connected for a touchdown in a dominant victory that was punctuated by a 62-yard interception return for a touchdown by Dick Anderson. The Dolphins were the youngest team to play in the Super Bowl to date. In Super Bowl VI, they had a clash against Tom Landry and the Dallas Cowboys. This would be Don Shula's third championship appearance in eight years as a head coach. Shula had completed the turnaround of the franchise in just two short years. He took his Dolphins squad, who were considered to be a laughingstock in their early days, and he had them on the doorstep of a championship. In the midst of preparing his team for the big game, the coach would receive a phone call from an unlikely source, President Richard Nixon. According to Freeman, Nixon called Shula to congratulate him on a victory against his old squad and to wish him well in his tilt with the Cowboys. Nixon had done some film study of his own, and had a suggestion for Shula. Paul Warfield should run plenty of slants against the Cowboys. I think it can work for a big game, said Nixon. Shula assured him that this was in fact part of the game plan and thanked him for his interest in pro football. Shula had apparently had a letter from Nixon during his time as a coach of the Colts, and there was a respect from one leader to another. Isn't that so funny? It's like, yeah, you should just um, throw passes to your your best player on the field. Yeah, thanks, man. I, I really like... He, he should have been like, what you really need to do is you need to try to score more points than your opponent. That's that's really what it comes down to. And he's like, gee, thanks, Captain Obvious over here. I thought it was interesting that Richard Nixon would take an interest in football in the first place, but it makes sense. Like, let's say you were the coach of a team. Would you feel more or less pressure if the president of the U.S. was communicating with you? at this point in time, I'd probably feel more pressure, especially if he's writing like correspondence letters and such. Within the course of my research, I tried to find whether or not Shula, you know, would write back to Richard Nixon or if they had any other sort of communication between one another. But this is all I could find. We'll see moving forward. Hunter S. Thompson, legendary drug experimenter and the author of Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, actually did a lot of reporting around the NFL in the early 70s. He had this to say about Nixon in football, quote, Nixon still speaks of Lombardi as if he might suddenly appear at any moment from underneath one of the larger rocks on the White House lawn. And Don Shula, despite his fairly obvious distaste for Nixon, has adopted the Lombardi style of football so effectively that the Dolphins are now one of the dullest teams to watch in the history of pro football. Nice guy, eh? Speaking of unsolicited advice from unqualified candidates, in the weeks leading up to the game, the Dolphins and Shula had the distinct pleasure of hearing rumblings in the media from their old friend, George Wilson. The Miami News ate it up as Wilson got up on his soapbox and proclaimed the following. I've been silent for too long. As far as I'm concerned, Don Shula took over a ready-made team. Joe Dokes could have coached that team. For reference, 
Joe Dokes was a film character apparently synonymous with being an idiot. He goes on, quote, I don't think the true story is out on this thing. You go over the first three years and you'll see we equaled or bettered the record of any expansion team in pro football. In the fourth season, we were taken out by injuries. You go over the roster and you'll see most of the guys who were doing the playing were committed to the Dolphins before Shula ever got to Miami. So again, even when he's not the coach, my guy, George Wilson is still making excuses for his poor performance. And it's also like, well, if you had all the players, bud, then where were you? You know, that's how I feel about it. It's just it goes to show his character because he's always blaming someone else for his lack of performance. I get that there is a learning curve when it comes to coaching an expanded franchise, whether we want to admit it or not. He was part of like the foundational culture build, but Reading this and then going over the last episode, it was very clear that Shula turned whatever Wilson had implemented upside down and it's working out for them. So as one might imagine, Don Shula was privately furious at the outburst from someone he had previously considered as a mentor and friend. As a testament to his composure, Shula would joke around with the media, making sure to introduce himself as Don Shula and not Joe Dokes and introducing his family as Dorothy and the Little Dokeses. So Shula essentially let his players be themselves in the buildup to the game. If you feel loose, be loose. If you feel tight, be tight. The worst thing you can do is not be honest with yourself. It was clear that Shula didn't want them to break too far away from their normal routines despite being in New Orleans for the big game. Slant pattern or not, the Cowboys were ready for the Dolphins' every move. They held the methodical offense to only three points on the day, which is the first time in Super Bowl history that a team would be held without a touchdown in the game. The Cowboys were able to run all over the Dolphins' staunch defense, racking up 252 yards on the ground. The Cowboys would use lots of misdirection plays on the ground, tricking the Dolphins and gashing them for huge plays. Cowboys player Dan Reeves said to Sports Illustrated, and Dan Reeves, by the way, for... You astute listeners would go on to become the coach of the New York Giants. Shout out to our first season. As a Cowboys player at the time, Dan Reeves said to Sports Illustrated, the Dolphins are a well-coached young football team. That makes it fairly easy to prepare for them because they are disciplined and well-coached. You know exactly what they're going to do. They're not going to come up and play a defense you haven't seen. They could come up with a new defense, I suppose. But they're basically a young team and they can't play a lot of change-ups. With an inexperienced club, the only way to play good football is to do the same thing over and over again. You can't give them more offense or defense than they can handle. Ula, who was known for bringing the strong silent type, lost to school during the game and had to be warned by officials due to his outbursts. This was a crushing defeat for the young Dolphins, but nonetheless a very important lesson. Manny Fernandez called that loss without a doubt to that point the worst moment of my life i left there and i sat on the bumper of a car and just broke down and cried like a baby larry zonka had a different way of looking at things when he said last time i cried was when yeller died i wanted to get even shula would tell his team after the game i want you all to remember how we feel right now and i don't ever want you to feel this way again he promised them that they would be back in the super bowl the next season Dallas defensive back Cornell Green would provide some bulletin board material for next season following the loss. Quote, 
The difference between the Miami Dolphins and Dallas Cowboys was that Miami was just happy to be in the game and Dallas came to win the game, end quote. The next morning, some Cowboys fans had found out where the Dolphins staff was parked and dumped garbage on their cars, writing Dolphins number two. How nice is that, eh? Things couldn't get any worse showing up the next day and there's so much trash I know. all over your, your vehicles. Adding insult to injury, that's for sure. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's how down in the dumps you feel. Like, think about it. They were basically dominated in the game and their inexperience showed. I mean, like I said, the only team up to that point not to score a touchdown in the Super Bowl. So basically they were taken to school by the Cowboys there. I want to go back to that quote by Dan Reeves, the player coach on the Cowboys. He mentions that even though they were disciplined and well-coached, but because they were young, there wasn't any complexity to the game. Basically, they couldn't handle change-ups, which I find very interesting. So essentially what they're saying is like they have a low floor, but they don't really have a high ceiling. And comparatively, they just they were outmatched. Yeah, I think what he's trying to say is they're so used to doing it in one style that it's very easy. It's not like they're going to be unpredictable or pull something out of the hat. You know exactly what their style was, which is give it to Zonka, give it to kick at the time and run it down your throat and play good defense. But obviously with these misdirection runs, Landry and the Cowboys coaching staff, including Reeves, found a, a hole in the armor. With Shula only being there for a couple of years, it's, it's really hard to implement everything all at once, right? The team can only absorb so much. So it's funny enough that like Wilson credits his tenure in the organization as to why the Dolphins are so successful, but it's almost like we could partially blame them as to why, you know, they lose in the Super Bowl. Like, I know it's a, it's sort of like a, a leap in logic, but bear with me. Shula comes in and he has to re-implement everything. You know, he has to start off from ground zero, right? Mm -hmm. They're learning absolutely new concepts. It's like they're so poorly taught that he has to come in and destroy it all. So he gets them to a level, but it's just like it's not enough at that point in time because they've only had a couple years under Shula. I suppose what it brings up more for me is the psychological aspect of the game for Shula being that it's another championship game that he's lost. We went over in the last episode his time with the Colts, the whole tumultuous breakup with that organization and Carol Rosenblum and Carol Rosenblum saying in the media that he would never win another championship and all this stuff. So the pressure from all sides is mounting on Don Shula and for them to come out flat in a big game, I mean, psychologically must have really weighed on Shula, not to mention the players too, right? Most definitely. Yeah, just like from my perspective, Don Shula side, right? The organization wasn't used to this level of newfound success. So it's almost as if they had to learn to be winners. If you're looking for a contemporary example, what comes to mind is the Cincinnati Bengals. You have a young upstart team that, and I'm not saying that the Bengals were dominated in the Super Bowl, far from it. They fought to the very end. But sometimes, like you said, Theo, you need to learn to become winners, right? You need that experience in order to grow from it and come back stronger. As for the Dolphins organization, they wanted to have a parade for them in Miami after the Super Bowl loss. But Shula refused and said, I don't believe in a parade for losers. 
So only 2,000 people were actually there to greet the Dolphins at the airport after their Super Bowl loss. It was clear that the chatter around Don Shula not being able to win the big one was getting louder than ever. One thing was for sure. The Miami Dolphins had officially arrived as perennial contenders in the NFL landscape. They were more determined than ever to prove their mettle. One important note is that the director of player personnel, Joe Thomas, was let go in 1971. Freeman explains, It was called a resignation, but it wasn't. He was solitary, a bragger, and his differences with Robbie and Shula led to his eventual demise in Miami. Joe Thomas's contribution to the Dolphins cannot be understated. His ability, along with personnel guy Bobby Bethard, to find diamonds in the rough is what enabled the Dolphins to succeed moving forward. He found Jim Kick in the fifth round. He traded for Warfield, Dick Anderson, and Larry Little. He went toe-to-toe with Nick Bonaconti and eventually convinced him to come to Miami to be a part of something great. He drafted guys like Fran Tarkenton during his days with Minnesota before scrambling QBs were in vogue in the NFL. Not to mention all the pieces he drafted to create a powerhouse. It's safe to say that without the savvy of Joe Thomas, we would not be telling the same story about the Dolphins that we are today. And I just want to go back again to that George Wilson quote. If anything, you know, the person that should be salty about this is not George Wilson. It's Joe Thomas. I mean, the guy, again, was wheeling and dealing in the offseason to pick up all these pieces. And George Wilson was not the guy to bring them all together cohesively for them to make it to a Super Bowl. Don Shula needed to be the guy to step in and do that. Yeah. And it also goes to show that for every good coach, there's a great player evaluator and a good personnel department and vice versa. As good as you are as assembly personnel, you need to have a great coach on the field. It goes without saying that most people don't know who Joe Thomas is. And you're completely right, Rizzoli. Like, we can't tell the story without him. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and again, you know, we're getting into history of the league here, but Fran Tarkenton is a name that will certainly come up in later podcasts. But I would say he is kind of the first scrambling QB prototype who was known, obviously he could throw, but he was definitely known for his athletic ability and being able to use his legs along with the traditional pocket passer element of a successful quarterback. Ultimately, I think Joe Thomas was a visionary in that way of finding players and finding diamonds in the rough, as we've mentioned before. So that about wraps it up for 1971. Thank you again for listening, and we will catch you on the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Checkdown Charlie's podcast. Check us out on YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, and Podbean. Don't forget to follow us at CheckDCharlies on Twitter and at CheckDownCharlies on Instagram. Like, comment, and subscribe on all platforms. And don't forget to leave us a review. Until next time, thanks for tuning in.